From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I think sriracha itself is a product of, uh, you know, someone immigrating from, well, someone with um, a varied cultural background. He was Chinese Vietnamese and he had been inspired by Thai hot sauces and he was an immigrant to the U.S. So he himself was probably like a culinary experimenter. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Diana Kwan. Diana is a food writer and photographer, and she's the author of two cookbooks. Her first, The Chinese Takeout Cookbook, explores Chinese food and culture in America. And her second, Red Hot Kitchen, is an exploration of Asian hot sauces. Diana's book offers the history behind classic Asian hot sauces, plus how to make your own at home and dozens of recipes to build on their bold flavors. In today's show, we're talking with Diana about her evolved relationship to spicy food, how she approaches cookbooks, and we're playing a little hot sauce-themed game. Plus, we have recipes for Diana's sweet chili lime chicken and sriracha sea salt brownies. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Diana Kwan joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Diana. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for so much for having me here. <laughs> of course. Thank you for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're so glad to have you. Um, and we're here to talk about your second cookbook, mm-hmm. Red Hot Kitchen. So I want to actually start going back quite a bit to mm-hmm. your early days, your childhood. And I realized you did not like spicy food when you were growing up. Is that right? That's correct. I grew up in a Cantonese household and everything we ate was, um, I guess, meant to emphasize like the freshness of vegetables and seafood and meat. Um, and there's pretty much no spiciness at all. Um, sure. And my dad hated hot sauces. And so we just never cooked with it at home. Right. And your parents ran a restaurant. Is that right? In Puerto Rico? They helped my uncle and aunt run a restaurant. Okay. So it was part Chinese restaurant and part ice cream parlor. Okay. So it was um, kind of like the best of both worlds. You get your um, Chinese meal and then you get dessert afterwards. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and when did you realize you you liked spicy food. It was when you were living in Beijing. Is that right? Yeah, that was, oh God, like I think it, around my mid-20s okay. and I moved to Beijing and I was living in the city that really, really loved food, but it didn't really have its own unique cuisine. Like there was um, imperial cuisine and then, the, you know, like common, like not commoners, but like the, People would pretty much eat like dumplings and noodles every day. And because it was the capital, it drew a lot of people from different areas around China. And for some reason, Sichuan food became kind of like the unofficial cuisine of Beijing. You could see Sichuan restaurants everywhere. Okay. And that was when you first sort of started to eat more spicy foods. And was it an instant love for you in your mid-20s then? Or was it still sort of a process for you to love spicy foods? Um. I think after I had really good Sichuan food for the first time, I was a little bit, you know, not that um, adapt or, you know, adapted to the really fury spices that some of the dishes had. But over time, like maybe after like 
a couple of weeks, I became really, really addicted to Sichuan pepper and all the chili sauces and oils used in Sichuan food. Well, I'm glad you did because <laughs> now we have this wonderful cookbook. And if people are wondering why I'm asking you so much about your love <laughs> for spicy food, it's because your, your latest cookbook, Red Hot Kitchen, is all about that, all mm-hmm. about hot sauces, Asian hot sauces specifically, and how to make them, not only how to incorporate them into dishes, but how to make them from scratch mm-hmm. at home as well. So yeah. I want to start by asking just why make your own hot sauce from scratch? Two reasons. Well, one is you can always customize the spiciness level to your liking. So if you, for example, really like um, the uh, Sriracha brand, that's like pretty much everywhere, the Hoi Fung brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and that's the Rooster brand. Yeah, right? that's the Rooster brand. Uh, you can um, adapt it to your liking. Um, if you don't think that it's spicy enough, you can use, for example, like Serrano chilies instead of the jalapenos that, that sure. are normally used. Um, and then there are a bunch of other sauces that you can adapt to, like um, XO sauce from Hong Kong, right. for example. It's never made the same anywhere. You know, home cooks and restaurant chefs would make their own versions and they would vary wildly from each other. Some makers make it really spicy. Some aren't spicy at all. Okay. So you can definitely adapt it to your liking. Um, and then the second reason is that a lot of places around the U.S. you can't get like good quality bottles that are shipped over right. from um, from Asia. So, and the, even if you can get the brands, um, sometimes you don't necessarily know what goes into the sauces. Sure. Like the, um, for example, the um, like Sichuan chili oil, like Lao Gan Ma, which is like a very popular brand um, that we know here. Um, sometimes like those oils and um, various versions of those oils, you don't really know exactly what goes into it. So if you want to know exactly what kind of oil goes into it, um, and if you want to know exactly what kind of spices goes into it, then it's really great to make your own. Yeah, you can control the heat, like you said, but also you can know that you're not having a lot of additives or something yeah, if that's exactly. important to you. So what inspired you then to do this book and to take these, it's nine, right? Nine hot sauces. Yeah, nine hot sauces. And to really focus your cookbook on those. So I've been teaching um, cooking classes for like the last 10 years or so. And I uh-huh. noticed that over time, more and more people have been really responding to classes that involve like really spicy food. Okay. Um, when I first started teaching... Like people were kind of just tiptoeing into the world of like Sichuan food um, and maybe Korean food too. And now these days, like whenever I post a Sichuan class, it's sold out immediately. And I teach dumpling classes too. And people really love um, like the Sichuan wontons I teach in it. Uh-huh. Um, so people, even if they don't think that they like spicy food, if I make it not super, super spicy, they're like, oh yeah, I could do this. Um, my heat tolerance can, can, <laughs> sure. can adapt to this. And the book, I re- didn't really want to do like an encyclopedia of Asian hot sauces because that would just take, you know, volumes and right. volumes. Right. Um, so I decided to narrow it down to nine that can be used as both a cooking ingredient and a condiment. So okay. you can just like put it over whatever you're done making as a condiment or you can just like cook with it. So, um, yeah, the, and I wanted to, broad geographical area too. So Thailand definitely has a lot. So I limited to four Thai (laughs) hot sauces. And then I also did one from Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, one from Korea, one from Japan, one from Hong Kong, and one from Sichuan province. Awesome. You teach classes, as you noted, cooking classes, and you said people have been interested in spicy foods. I feel like there's also this like 
sect of Americans who are interested in just like the spiciest mm-hmm. thing that you can eat, right? Yeah. Is that something you've seen as like a driving factor and in interest in spicy foods too? Like yeah. there's YouTube videos of like Definitely. people eating ghost peppers. Oh, and I know. <laughs> It's kind of like, I don't know, it's like this like one-upmanship, you know, like, oh, who can eat the hottest chili? But sometimes it's not really good for your lungs and for your stomach to eat hotter and hotter chilies. Right. And what I try to focus on is having a balance of flavor. So a lot of these um, hot sauces, it's not just heat, it's just layers and layers of flavor building upon each other. Right. So I was also really intrigued to learn sort of the story of how chilies as an ingredient Mm -hmm. came to Asia. Um, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of that history with us because mm-hmm. I was, I had no context that, um, they're actually a relatively recent ingredient yeah. in Asia in terms of, you know, the past few hundred years. Yeah. So chilies didn't really make their way into like, um, the cuisines of East Asia and Southeast Asia until around like the 1600s. Mm-hmm. So they, um, chili peppers, um, came from the Americas and, um, like Columbus was, you know, sailing with, uh, like Portuguese explorers and other European explorers, and they were heading towards the Americas thinking they were heading to India. Right. And they found um, chili peppers, and they actually thought that they had been, that those were um, black pepper, and they're, they didn't know what it looked like. So they're right. like, this is black pepper. And that is how, that's why we have like two different names for the same thing, chilies and peppers. So they brought them back to Europe where people were like, oh, these are cool looking plants. Let's just look at them instead of cooking <laughs> with them. So they were just like these curious, like looking ornamental plants. Decorative things. Yeah, decorative yeah, things. Um, and then um, the Portuguese actually went to um, Goa, which is on the west side of India. And there, the um, cooks had been using a lot of spices in their cooking for a long time, like cinnamon, cardamom, um, and black pepper. And they readily adapted, um, or yeah, they readily adapted the chili peppers into the, their cooking. And that was probably the first, um, area in Asia that started to really use chili peppers. Um, but then, throughout like the 1600s and into the early 1700s, the Portuguese traders, along with Arab traders, Indian traders, they brought them to um, like Java um, and Sumatra, which is present day Indonesia, Uh um, you know, Siam, where Thailand is now, and um, to China, also to um, Japan and Korea too. Yeah. Actually, missionaries brought them to to Korea. So that's how it kind of just went all over. And they've just become such an integral part to the cuisines of East Asia and Southeast Asia in that sort of short period of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think people are intimidated by making hot sauce at home? I know you have a wonderful guide Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book into like different types of chilies and sort of the process, but it, it seems like something that for a lot of people mm-hmm. might not cross their mind because I don't know, I'm, I'm speaking from a person who lives in the Bay area. So I'm a little bit entitled here in terms of my selection of hot mm-hmm. sauces I can buy pre-made, yeah. but it, it feels like something that maybe people might still be intimidated by. Yeah. The people can be intimidated by them. Um, but the hot sauces in the book kind of vary in levels of difficulty. Like you can have something like sambal or uh, sambal olic or Sichuan chili oil that you can make in just, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. And then you have something like traditional gochujang, which could take up to like one or two months for fermentation. Sure. Um, but it just depends on like what you're interested in. Like if you really want to 
learn to make things from scratch. Like, for example, like we have a wide assortment of like yogurts and beers and kombuchas available, but people still really want to make them at home. Right. So it's just like, it just depends on how like geeky you are in terms of making your own. Um, and it's also really cost effective too, for some of these sauces to make your own at home. Yeah, absolutely. So you noted that you were taking a pretty wide geographical approach in mm-hmm. this book and you wanted to represent a, a large swath of Asia in, mm-hmm. in this book. How did you sort of tackle that in terms of not only narrowing it down to these nine hot sauces, but then building dozens of recipes around each of those hot sauces that also sort of reflected that wide geographical view. Yeah, I wanted to do both traditional recipes and more, I guess, globally inspired recipes. Um, So that's normally how I cook at home. I'm not like, oh, sriracha just has to be used with like, (laughs) you know, Thai and Vietnamese dishes. Sure. So yeah, I would use, I would try to find like what traditional dishes would be used with those, um, with that specific chili sauce. And then I would kind of just build on top of that, try to experiment beyond, um, even just Asian cooking. Yeah. I mean, some of the recipes, just to name a few that really stuck out at me (laughs) as being really intriguing, but probably not super traditional are like your sriracha sea salt brownies, Mm -hmm. which I haven't made, but I'm super intrigued (laughs) by. And also your sriracha whole kernel cornbread, Mm -hmm. which also just feels like a really interesting use of hot sauce that many people might not think about in sort of a day-to-day cooking uh, context. Yeah. And I noticed that a lot of people just like try to, well, if they're like, they're self-described like sriracha addicts they would just try to squirt it on anything like including (laughs) desserts so why not just try to build on that yeah instead of just like pouring it on your ice cream you're actually building it into a delicious brownie recipe which i love have we and by we i mean america like ruined sriracha i don't think so like i think sriracha itself is a product of uh you know someone immigrating from well someone with um a varied cultural background he was chinese vietnamese and he had been um inspired by Thai hot sauces and he was an immigrant to the US. So he himself was probably like a culinary experimenter. So, and this is the founder of Hoi Fong who you're talking about? Founder of Hoi Fong. And I mean, the more traditional sriracha kind of dates back to like the 19, I would say like 1930s or so, Uh um, from this like little seaside town in Thailand. But the sriracha that we know in the US came from this immigrant who had uh, such a diverse background. So I don't like, I don't think he would mind that a lot of people are are just you know as you said like squirting on ice cream sure yeah (laughs) which i haven't tried so i I shouldn't i shouldn't pass any judgment on sriracha on ice cream um since i haven't tried it i read that you if you were um forced to choose a favorite hot sauce i believe i'm right to say you would pick exo sauce yes can you tell us why it actually wasn't my favorite when i started this um when i started this i don't think i had a favorite i was just like you know, let's just see what happens. I had like all these hot sauces, um, you know, prior, but in the course of just making this book, I was kind of like living with these hot sauces every single day and trying to find new things to make with them every single day. Um, but XO sauce is, um, a hot sauce from Japan, um, not from Japan, from Hong Kong. Uh And it is odd because a Cantonese cuisine is not known for having spicy food. Right. But from I think like the mid eighties, early nineties on like chefs in restaurants started to create this XO sauce and they named it XO 
because it kind of brought to mind something luxurious in quality. It was kind of shorthand for, um, for brandy. Okay. So mm -hmm. they, um, made it many, many different ways. Um, but a very common, um, combination of ingredients would be dried shrimp, dried scallops, um, jinhua ham, which is tastes very similar to like prosciutto, um, and just layers of umami flavored built on top of each other along with fresh chilies and dried chilies. And that definitely over time became my favorite. And it's like one of those sauces where you, it takes a little bit of time to make, but once you have this humongous jar of it, you can just add it to a lot of like plain noodles, plain rice, like anything. And it doesn't require that many other cooking ingredients. Yeah. And it is such a unique hot sauce. And it's, as you noted, the newest of the hot sauces featured here, you know, mm -hmm. only a few decades old in existence. Yeah. Um, but also something I feel like you can't really, at least in all the grocery shopping I've done, mm -hmm. you can't really go and buy an XO sauce. It's it, sort of something you have it, to make. Yeah. At least here in Hong Kong, you can definitely buy like sure. good quality ones. Um, but it's pricey. Much. It's yeah. very, very pricey. It can be like $50, $60. Like the lower quality ones would be like maybe $20, $30 for a very small jar. Yeah. Um, but if you make your own, um, all these ingredients are widely available in American Chinatowns or grocery stores. So you can just um, make a, like a huge, huge bottle of it. Yeah. And just use it for, you know, a month or two. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. You also have a chapter at the end of the book that I love on cooling drinks. Mm -hmm. And you offer some advice throughout on um, maybe people who aren't accustomed to eating a lot of spicy food and might want something to sort of tame the spice. Yes. Drinking wise. Tell us some of the recommendations you make for how to um, address that. Mm -hmm. I understand beer is not the best option. Beer is not really the best option. Um, carbon, anything carbonated is not really the best option. If you're not used to eating a lot of spicy food, if you drink carbonated beverages, it kind of just like fans the flames in your mouth. So yeah. you would try, you would definitely want something. Um, there are, you know, beers that you can use. Asian lagers are a little bit better because they do have added, um, oh, some of them have rice added to it. So starch definitely helps tame the flames in your mouth. And anything that has a little bit of sweetness will counteract the spiciness too. Um, but in the last chapter, I have um, a few drinks that have, um, especially, oh, the one that comes to mind is the avocado shake. Yeah. Because, um, fat also helps, definitely helps to tame the flames in your mouth. Okay. So that has, that has a combination of, um, coconut milk and avocados and together blended together. Um, that is a really, really cooling drink. And that's based on, um, a couple of, um, avocado shakes that come from, uh, Vietnam and from Indonesia. Okay. Yeah, it looks delicious. I saw the picture of that. It looks really refreshing. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Diana Kwan. But first, if you're a new listener or you're a little behind, don't miss some of our recent episodes where we sat down with guests like Ruth Reichel. Cookbooks are inspirational. They're, you know, if you're going to give a dinner party and, you know, you lie in bed at night and you think, what do I want to cook? Who's coming? And what would they like to eat? And you start flipping through cookbooks, looking for ideas. And we also just hosted our first Salt and Spine Live, a live recording of this podcast in front of an audience at Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Author Gabriela Camara joined us for that episode, and we played a fun Can You Taco It game. So I would make a ceviche with the passion fruit and then put it in a tortilla and make a taco. <laughs> <laughs> also, another way in which everything can be a taco is 
that if you fry a tortilla, uh-huh. it becomes a tostada. Right. And anything can go on a tostada. <laughs> Remember, you can get all Salt and Spine episodes, nearly 50 in-depth conversations with some of your favorite cookbook authors by subscribing today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Now back to our conversation with Diana Kwan, author of Red Hot Kitchen. There's another hot sauce you feature that we haven't talked about mm-hmm. yet, which I love. It's the yuzu koshu, mm-hmm. um, which if folks are not familiar with it, is a citrusy sort of hot sauce from mm-hmm. Japan. Yes. Um, I don't see a lot of exposure in the U.S. of mm-hmm. yuzu koshu. I see it at restaurants occasionally, yeah. but it's not really a thing I think a lot of home cooks are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you use yuzu koshu in your cooking? So yuzu kosho is great because it has a combination of like citrus flavor and like green chilies. So it in Japan, they use yuzu fruit, which is pretty much impossible to find here unless right. like, I guess you, you live in California, so it's a little easier. <laughs> We're like blessed with everything. Yeah, you're here. blessed with everything. <laughs> yeah. But for the rest of us, um, <laughs> it's not really widely available. So right. I use a combination of Meyer lemons and limes and that's what yuzu kind of tastes like. It's like a combination of the two. And um, you can just like grate the peel and then add some salt, add some of the juice. And it's really good for, I would say, a lot of Japanese cooking, but you can use it for Mexican cooking. I love having it on tacos. Yeah. I love having it on grilled corn. And you can just use it for, you know, just dabbing it on any sort of like noodle, rice dishes, um, fish, steamed fish, grilled fish. Right. Now, this is your second cookbook. Your first cookbook was the Mm -hmm. Chinese takeout book. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you were accomplishing with your first book. And then I want to ask about some of the differences in the process of the two. Sure. So for the Chinese takeout cookbook, I wanted to do a history um, of Chinese food in America in a cookbook form. Uh So I was really inspired by Jennifer Aitley's book, The Fortune Cookie Chronicles. And she kind of just um, goes through kind of, uh, it was like a narrative of Chinese food in America told through different um, subjects and stories. And when I was reading it, I wanted kind of like a cookbook companion to it. And I knew that there were many Chinese cookbooks on the market about different regional Chinese cuisines, but there wasn't one to address the wide variety of um, Chinese foods that were available in the U.S. and told through like an immigrant lens. Uh-huh. So that's what I wanted to do with that. Yeah. And I wanted to include a lot of like history and culture. Right. How did your process sort of change doing your second book versus your first cookbook? Well, the first one, I had no idea what I was doing. So (laughs) I was basically, I was like, okay, so I would just do an appetizer chapter. That's a lot of fried foods and eat, you know, fried foods for a month. And then I would do the chicken chapter and I would just have chicken for a month. And that was really not great for variety. And I was, (laughs) you know, getting sick of chicken. Right. So uh, this time around, I was much more organized in terms of trying to vary my recipe testing from day to day. Okay. And I knew that from the first time I had a lot of trouble just preparing ingredients for recipes too. It wasn't um, very streamlined that way. So this time I was a little bit better and 
organized that way. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you always learn from the yeah, first definitely. one what to do better the next time around. Did you um, grow up with cookbooks as a kid in your house? No. No. I didn't really cook that much um, as a kid. My mom um, kind of commandeered the kitchen and she didn't really okay. let me or my dad in it. Okay. And so she just, but she was very, very um, inventive with her cooking and she definitely drew inspiration from everywhere around her. Uh-huh. And when I was like, for example, when I was in high school, I got really into sushi and I started buying like, you know, packets of um, pre-made sushi from the local supermarket. Sure. And my mom was like, why would you spend <laughs> so much money on sushi? Let me make it at home for you. Yeah. And she ended up using like leftover Cantonese roast pork and like wrapping it into <laughs> sushi, <laughs> right. which was amazing. Yeah, sounds amazing. <laughs> so um, yeah, I didn't really grow up with cookbooks, um, but my mom would consult like her, you know, few uh, Chinese language cookbooks that she had. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't really start cooking until I was in high school and I started, I randomly decided to start a custom cookie business okay. to raise money for spring break. Okay. And I ended up like making a few hundred dollars from that. That's awesome. <laughs> and then did you go to culinary school? I did, but after four year college. After four year college. Yeah. Okay. When did sort of cookbooks and the concept of like doing food as a career and particularly becoming a cookbook author mm-hmm. sort of cement itself for you? It was after college. I was um, okay. working at a bookstore at the time and I was reading a lot of gourmet magazine uh-huh. and I was um, taking uh, like reading a lot of MFK Fisher, a lot of Laurie Colwin and yep. they are just like amazing writers. Yeah. And I just was like, okay, the more I read about food, the more I want to write about food. Yeah. And I started like doing a lot more cooking in my home kitchen. And then I was like, I need, I was living in uh, Boston at the time, and that was where I grew up, and I decided I just needed to move to New York, and that was my excuse to move to New York, was going to culinary school. <laughs> right. It's <laughs> a good excuse. <laughs> yeah. um, you mentioned MFK Fisher and Laurie Colwin. Are there other authors or cookbook writers or specific works in particular mm-hmm. that have been really influential for you over your career now? Um, other than uh, MFK Fisher and Laurie Colwin, Anthony Bourdain, I read a lot when mm-hmm. I was first starting out, and I just loved how curious he was about various, you know, pretty much every culture around the world and their food. Yeah. Um, and another book that I love um, in terms of cookbooks is like the newer New York Times cookbook, the essential New York Times cookbook. Uh-huh. And I love just how it delves into the history of every single recipe. And that's what I tried to do. Um, I don't think like a recipe is just like meant to be cooked and eaten. I re- I'm just crazy curious about the history and the culture behind it. Yeah. Why do you think cookbooks are important in today's world? I think it's important to slow down. Like we're just glued to screens all the time and you just like ride the subway, walk down the streets and everyone's just glued to their screens. And I think having cookbooks, like physical cookbooks, not cookbooks that you read off a Kindle, like it's just time spent away from the computer, time spent in the kitchen, uh, oftentimes time spent making food for people you care about. Um, and I think it's just really good to have like a book that is a vehicle for, um, for feeding people and for community. Yeah. I love that slowing down and making your own hot sauce for sure. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So we always end with a little game. Mm -hmm, So I thought we'd play a hot sauce theme game today. And we're, we're not a YouTube video that's going to like make you eat spicy hot wings. (laughs) Like I've seen these videos, which blow my mind. Um, but we have this fun little game and there's these cards next to you. 
So we've played this with a few guests, and there's some protein, some vegetables, I think something else, and some secret ingredients. Mm -hmm. So the way I thought we would do this is um, maybe play two rounds and see how it goes. And you can draw a card from each pile, okay? And you'll have you'll be then presented with four ingredients, okay? And you can tell us how you would take those four ingredients and work in one of your nine hot sauces featured in Red Hot Kitchen Mm -hmm. to present a beautiful dish. Okay, all right. So can I, do I have to grab the top? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. And I didn't shuffle them, so feel free to just grab any from one of each. All right. All right, so shrimp. Okay. And peas. Okay. And cinnamon. Oh, that's a challenging. Yeah. Hmm. And the and secret ingredient, which secret always can be interesting too. And honey. All and right. Honey. So I would. So shrimp, peas, cinnamon, and honey, and plus a hot sauce. Plus a hot sauce. Okay. I would do something that is like a quick red cooking with the shrimp. I would cook the shrimp, um, and I would actually take it out. Put it on the side because, you know, we don't want to overcook shrimp. Right. And I would actually do a sauce with the drippings um, from the cooked shrimp, okay. the seared shrimp. And I would add cinnamon. I would add star anise and Sichuan chili oil. Okay. Um, along with some soy sauce and honey and kind of simmer it down to a really nice, savory, spicy um braise sauce. Okay. Um, very similar to like red cooking in, um, in Shanghainese cuisine. And then I would add the shrimp back in. I would add the peas and then serve it over rice. Sounds delicious. <laughs> a little spicy, a little sweet. Mm-hmm. It sounds excellent. Yep. Okay. Let's do one more round. Okay. All right. Protein. We have tempeh. Okay. And tempeh. Then, then we have asparagus. Okay. Okay. And then we have bay leaf. Then we have octopus. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So octopus, tempeh, asparagus, and bay leaf. All right. All so right. I would actually grill the octopus first. Uh-huh. Um, and maybe actually I would grill the asparagus also along with the octopus. Okay. Um, and then I would um, cook the tempeh in a skillet and add sambal because tempeh and sambal are both from Indonesia. Sure. Um, and I would add a little bit of bay leaf for the flavoring um, and maybe a little bit of um, Indonesian sweet soy sauce. Okay. Um, but not too much. I And I'll thin it out with a little bit of rice wine. Okay. Um, and it would be kind of like a very... It, would, it could be served um, room temperature cool, too, for a, a summer picnic fair. Okay. So it, it's it's grilled but then room temperature and it all sort of comes together yeah. at the end. Yes. Okay. Awesome. I love it. Well, I think both of those are, are great recipes. Maybe we have the start of Red Hot Kitchen too here. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Diana, for joining us. Thank this was you so for fun. having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes for Diana's sweet chili sauce and a sweet chili lime chicken, plus a recipe for sriracha sea salt brownies. 
Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about, all right? But if you're listening to the podcast on the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch, all right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd, all right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content. All right, let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of Indisputable. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>